This show was first broadcast on Free FM, Hamilton, New Zealand's community access media organisation. For more information on our lineup of shows and the role we play in the media, visit freefm.org.nz. Hi, it's Vanessa from the Fighting Stigma Show on Free FM. Are you a Waikato local? Do you have an idea for a radio show? Do you want to try your hand at being a content creator on Free FM? If so, check out our website on freefm.org.nz or find Free FM on Facebook and get in touch. Historic Souvenirs presents A Cyclist's Intrepid Journeys, adapted from his book Pedal Power. Roy Sinclair and his partner Haruko are seeing her homeland by cycling Japan from top to tail. A photojournalist at the press in Christchurch, Roy, then head of New Zealand's chapter of the World Peace Bell, sought a replica bell to cite at Christchurch Botanic Gardens. Trailer for sale or rent Runes to let 50 cents No phone, no pool, no pets Ain't got no cigarettes I work two hours of pushing broom Fives an eight by twelve, four bit broom I'm a man of means, by no means King of the road the sun is setting over the sea of Japan. Our route dodges the high ground near Mount Chokai, nearly as high as Mount Naruhoi in New Zealand. In Japan, the volcanic activity created as many as 100 mountains about that height. They pose a challenge to climb all 100 in the shortest time. In 1964, a Japanese alpinist, Kayuya Fukuda, set up the list. Two Kiwis come to climb them all in 1997. Craig McLaughlin and Travis Tyoror take 78 days, setting the record. My physical ambitions are more modest. To look lean after all our cycling and daily dips in an onsen, to strip the kilograms from my middle-aged body. The temptation comes in the food from the convenience stores we shop in. Tonight we'll be the only campers setting up our tent in the park, so we make the most of spreading out our belongings without inconveniencing anyone. There's a sense of security as the last light sinks over the horizon. It leaves us a pool of light of a lone street lamp. My groceries could be as questionable as the labels, all in kanji script I can't read. But there's no mistaking the cold beer, small bottle of Californian wine, and a cup-sized sake. In Japan, we always feel reasonably safe camping on our own. Occasionally, our bike trail takes us along narrow paths through communal farms on rich soil producing abundant crops. Rice, kumara, soybean, a variety of vegetables strange to western eyes. Hokkaido, being a windy part of Japan, is rife with wind turbines, standing like huge multi-blade aircraft propellers on prominent landmarks to capture ocean winds, and turning so softly their sound is drowned by the drone of late-summer cicadas. 
The politeness of Japanese society finds artistic expression in their road safety signs. Their graphic go-slow signs outline the profile of a snail. From what I observe on this, our first full day of cycling in Japan, I'm struck by how similar it seems to New Zealand so far. The island of Hokkaido has about 7 million people, a mere fraction of the nation of Japan. It's the small seaside town Tashio we've chosen to stay tonight. It's comforting to cycle across the wide river, knowing motorists respect a 50 km per hour speed limit on long two-way bridges. Our day ends with a good soak in the onsen, yet my 60-year-old body protests at the perceived discomfort after cycling so far to be climbing into our tiny tent in a local camping ground. I've yet to discover the real meaning of discomfort on our journey. Thanks to wind on our backs, our average speed on the road is nearly 17 kilometres per hour. Not a bad start. <coughs> Morning. Disentangle ourselves from the tent. Survey our surroundings. So far the weather's been kind. Once the tent's packed, it's time to go. <coughs> In New Zealand, we'd be travelling with a cache of food, but in Japan... We rely on finding a convenience store, distinguished by their plain, unattractive, western-style decor. Typically, we buy for breakfast an onigiri, a seaweed-covered rice ball with filling of salmon, roe, or pickled plum, followed by hot, canned coffee. The convenience store welcome, smiling staff shouting, Irashai messi, is a constant delight. Once we've found what we want to eat, we expect to find, outside such stores, a post box handy. Their height is ideal to set up for a breakfast table. This becomes the routine, with our belongings being bungeed to our bike's panniers for easy access. Sometimes, Harlequo accuses me of being an ignorant foreigner. She won't stand for my Kiwi antics. Some offend cultural protocols she'll never compromise. Once, I recall... She stops me putting our rubbish from the meal the night before into a camping ground receptacle. She points to the sign. I can't read it. Requiring all rubbish to be disposed of in regulation bags costing 200 yen. That's about $2.50 in New Zealand currency. The camping ground office is unattended. I need to tie our rubbish on top of my pannier rack till I dispose of it legally. That explains the highway verge we sometimes see used for dumping of travellers' rubbish, such as plastic bags. Occasionally, yellow cars on patrol announce requests that motorists not litter along the highway. Not being a fluent speaker of Japanese, given so few of the locals are English-speaking, I'm often on the back foot. I tentatively express surprise at the rubbish we see on the coast, mostly washed up from nearby countries, China, Korea and Russia. Halako hastens to explain, or else it's the typhoons. Either way, it's surely not from Japan. Yet the cyclist sees more than Japan presents of temples, snow-capped Mount Fuji, and cherry blossom nodding in the wind. We continue south, pedalling 70 to 80 kilometres most days. Fishing villages are unrepentantly shabby. Ancient wooden buildings are, I guess, as they've always been, in a sense, this is also their great appeal. On Saturday, 
A roar ahead announces a friendly motorcycle rally, shattering the early quietness. In New Zealand, such leather-clad riders awaken anxiety. Here in Japan, it suggests individuals escaping the constraints of their strictly controlled workplaces on weekdays for weekend freedom. Groups of bikers pass in both directions. The carefree riders and cheery pillion passengers wave their greetings. I'm touched by the way they'll treat us pedal cyclists as if we're one of them. When we stop at a cafe, it's crowded with Harley Davidson men and women enjoying a break, proudly wearing their patches. The paintwork, their painstaking attention to detail. These must be the world's best presented Harley Davidsons. Sidecar models especially popular. One bears the United States flag and the emblem of the New York Police Department. Mr. Yanagida, its owner, lovingly polishes it daily, so much so that his wife alleges he loves her less. While Mr. Yanagida is quick to reassure her, he worries if really he might be putting his Harley Davidson first, he says. I suppose that once the women go home without their stylish leather jackets and the prestige of being honorary males, they'll be every bit the dainty feminine Japanese we're used to seeing. The air shatters as engines answer an unseen signal. Our friendly motorcyclists are ready for the road. Their thunder dies with distance. The only sound in their wake is of creaking knees. Mine. Still getting used to toiling over the unfolding landscape, one rustic farm after another. Haruko might prefer the allure of the city life she experienced in young years in Japan. My mind focuses more on the mountains my father reminisced about, the places we tramped, and whether tilting into a nor'westerly wind on Canterbury Plains, or leaning into the gale of a dying typhoon on the island of Hokkaido in Japan, how I prefer the rural setting. There, I believe, is where true Japanese cultural life is flourishing, not parading behind a smartly attired Japanese guide to see the sanitized city highlights for tourists. I'm indeed privileged to have Haliko as my interpreter, as well as cycling companion. Japan's farming is labour-intensive compared with New Zealand's. We'll stop, talk to people with Haliko translating. Rural people are a constant delight. Two who pause in a kumara field are highly amused. Alluding to Haliko helping me understand what's going on, they say, We've only on television ever seen a conversation translated like that. There's little machinery evident. Japanese beyond middle age appear to be enjoying the physical work and being outdoors. seeing a centuries-old Japan way of life, 
Their toil in the fields may be by hand tools, as high-speed trains rush past at 300 kilometres per hour, bearing the bold slogan in English, Ambitious Japan. While the farm workers prop at the end of the field their bicycles, ready to head home at the end of day. It's not our last encounter with rural dwellers. From a road along the west coast of Japan, we see a woman working alone in a rice field, seeing her colourful attire. I'm hoping she'll allow a photograph. When we approach her, her lovely smile disguises her deep disappointment. As the planted fields began to form the rice, winds pounding the coast whipped up the sea. As the typhoons drive salt water onshore over the forming rice, the damage is done. Her rice crop fails. Now, she's to cut the failed rice crop by hand to prepare for new plantings. says, my time is my own, please come to my home for tea, it's close to here. We follow Michiko's bicycle to a quaint old farmhouse, some rooms no longer in use. High above her small back garden, a railway line comes around a curve on a cliff. We trust their containers are secure. Michiko remembers when steam trains used to shake the entire house. husband and his 93-year-old mother join us for tea that becomes a banquet lunch of grilled rice balls, baby snapper, a popular summer dish of noodles and ice and nashis. Michiko's mother-in-law looks curious to see how I handle chopsticks. I surprise her. Michiko keeps in touch. We enjoy her long, neat letters written in kanji script. Troubling is the thought that New Zealand Pursuing economic advantage of free trade agreements pays no heed to how it impacts on rural traditional farming, a way of life evolved over centuries, yet likely to fade against international competition from big-scale farming in more favourable climates. We thread our way through small villages that lie along the coast of the Sea of Japan. 
Michiko's family is facing intense competition from New Zealand and other nations at prices that won't justify Japanese small farmers continuing their traditional cultivation of marginal lands. A camping spot, not far from a public toilet, tempts us to call it a day, having only covered a modest mileage along the coast. We spot an inviting patch of grass. Two tents there already are pitched by three chaps who set out for a weekend's fishing only to scurry for shelter in harbour as bad weather breaks at sea, soiling their fishing expedition. So now they'll share their banquet dishes. Great hospitality, for they taste delicious. Harlico worries the waves in the wake of the storm might crash over our tent at night. It takes till next afternoon to see the sun again. As the winds abate, we take a blustery walk. Wild seas with white-topped waves attack the offshore lighthouse and harbour buoy. On the foreshore is cast up in the typhoon a Pacific blue tuna. At the inn, we see the framed photo of such a single tuna, weighing more than 200 kilograms. It fetches more than 2 million yen, almost 25,000 New Zealand dollars, at Tokyo's Yukiji fish market. Haliko points out a monument to Ishikawa Takuboku, ex-Tokyo news reporter, not for neglecting his own family in favour of women and sake, but for his poetry, endearing himself to the Japanese nation. His private life was awful, but Japanese people loved his verse, Haliko says. Examples are carved into the black stone pinnacles in kanji script and English. Their translation seems to me as depressing as the sea is turbulent. Hiding over the horizon is the city of Hakodate, its lights by night sometimes visible from here on Honshu. We'll soon be on our way south from the town of Oma, cycling into mountains along a road little used. It's the quiet rural Japan, where friendliness comes naturally. My long-time friend Tatsuro Okazaki a member of the New Zealand Society of Japan, had written to several media people in prefectures we are cycling through, explaining our length of Japan bike ride and our journey for the World Peace Bell. In the city of Niigata, the television station assigns a reporter to capture a scene of us crossing the Shinano River, Japan's longest and widest. The port's unusual in monthly sailings of a freighter to North Korea, we are staying at an inn so we can see the TV interview that comes on while we're at our low table, eating, drinking, and watching ourselves. We visit the pier, jutting into the ocean at Izumozaki, where workers are undoing padlocks, Japanese lovers clamped on ironwork in pacts of everlasting commitment. It's a trend authorities take to heart in detaching the lovers' pledges to store in a nearby vault so as to free up space on the ironwork for more. Now we head inland for Joitsu, the World War II site of the former prisoner of war camp where 65 Australians died. The Australia-Japan Foundation honours how an Australian couple has wished to tell young Japanese of the tragic story of war and to commemorate the Australian casualties. The foundation in Joitsu has a museum to help achieve this on the actual POW campsite. There's a striking monument of two flying nymphs, one Japanese, the other Australian, greeting each other from either side of an entrance.
Set in stone, there's a pluck. And I'm surprised to see a separate black stone remembering eight Japanese guards who were executed for having treated prisoners cruelly. That plaque's original wording so upset Australians and Japanese sentiments that the final inscription cites none of those condemned Japanese by name. Instead, it refers to them as eight stars in the peaceful sky, an old man of the museum comments. They were criminals, but also victims of World War II. We consistently clock up 80 to 100 kilometres each day. While the weather's fine, we make the most of it by camping where we could, even surreptitiously setting our tent up in parks after dark. It's frustrating we find no place to camp in the village of Kozuya as the sun sinks. Wondering what to do, we ask if we may sleep in its small railway station. The station agent not only agrees, she also scrubs down the floor for us once the echoes of the last commuter train disappear down the line, leaving the platform silent. Spreading out our sleeping mats, we're possibly comfortable falling into a surreal world where dreams hold sway, just as the first of many freight trains roars by. Around midnight, a pair of flashlights probes our improvised accommodation. Konbanwa. Good evening, say the uniformed police. Wishing it were warmer for our comfort's sake, they leave us with a cheery Kyotsuketi. Take care. We wonder if the friendly station agent alerts the police to our presence so as to ensure we're safe and secure overnight. We wake early, eager to pack our gear before getting trampled on by commuters catching an early train. begins with a long slog uphill on Honshu's well-known Route 4 to the train station at Hanamaki, where a European, the first we've encountered on our trip, asks if I speak English. I'm a New Zealander. He's Bob from Chicago, whose impression is that nothing of note ever happens in New Zealand. I disagree, citing our stoush over refusing nuclear submarines' presence in New Zealand ports. He chuckles, says New Zealand's got far too many sheep and cows, millions and millions, it's ridiculous. Away from our own culture and familiar faces, we struggle with unknown Japanese vocabulary. It's reassuring to converse in straightforward, if pointless, English. We part, smiling, as we recognise our own kind. None has a monopoly on language and literature. 
of about 70,000 to discover its delight in children's literature. Japanese author Kenji Miyazawa writes wacky children's stories best understood by adults. I enjoy reading his Night Train to the Stars and most of his other writings in English. In his youth, he saw rural poverty all around him, so created a fantasy country of universal blessings called Ihatov, the name by which many still call his home city of Hanamaki. Genji applies his knowledge as an agricultural chemist to the struggling fields and paddies of his youth and seems to suggest in his writing that he'd regularly go into the wider world, to China, Europe and England, playing gramophone music of the great European masters. A strict vegetarian, he learnt the international language of Esperanto and promoted peace. It's surprising that, in fact, he was born, lived and died in the small world he called Ihatov, where he was often to be seen alone, walking slowly, head bowed, deep in thought. Kenji Miyazawa's rich, amusing tales of fancy are prolific in his thirties, but his creative career is cut short when he dies of lung disease at the age of thirty-seven. His legacy lives on, so we'll enjoy the colour and sound of a nighttime summer street parade in his city of fun and frivolity.
more episodes, use the accessmedia.nz app for iOS and Android devices, or subscribe to this podcast via Spotify, iHeartRadio, or Apple Podcasts. This free FM podcast was brought to you with support from New Zealand On Air.